Corona so. So, in terms of the type of lectures or teachings that I've been offering here, some of them, I think it's rather a minority, are really directed to us as people living in the 21st century. And if we weren't living here and now, we could just skip it altogether. So most of what I said yesterday afternoon, if you're not living in the 21st century, if you're living in 19th century Tibet, that would be a total waste of time. They wouldn't believe that anybody would be that crazy. But we are living here. And I do have a very strong conviction that it's absolutely imperative if one wants to have a very flourishing Dharma practice and that one's understanding of Dharma is thoroughly integrated with one's actual way of viewing reality. Not your Buddhist view, but the way you actually view reality. That we must have these in dialogue. You know. They must be in dialogue. They must be on speaking terms. Uh, and so that's why I spent a good deal of time yesterday afternoon doing that. On the one hand, and I don't feel any regrets. I made a couple of minor errors, and I thank Patrice for at least some minor errors. I mean, Patrice at least pointed out a couple. So just for footnote, tiny foot and extremely brief, um, that nurse practitioners and physicians' assistants can also give prescriptions, and not just psychiatrists. Thank you. Correct. PCB physician. Oh, yeah, that what I knew. <laughs> so there we are. Um, but the really the central the theme, I would say something like 80% of what we're doing here, it doesn't matter whether you're living in, in Tibet in the 19th century, you're living in India in the 8th century, or now, in, let's say, in Manhattan in the 21st century. The teachings are right there. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's where we're going to return this afternoon. Back to teachings that are really, to my mind, they're spot on, they're relevant, they're contemporary at any time. And they're relevant wherever you're living. And frankly, from my perspective, in this galaxy or another galaxy, the teachings on Madhyamaka, Middle Way, they're either throughout the, throughout the entire universe or they're just not true at all. Right? So that's where we're going today. And then occasionally, I think less frequently than I have really addressed this as people living in the 21st century, some of the teachings, when we're brushing up, to the, brushing up on the teachings of Dzogchen, the parables, for example, those parables are not 21st century parables. And I would say this, these teachings that we're about to hear, they're addressing us as sentient beings. Sentient beings who are subject to four noble truths. Right? And this is to get to the root of those and to eradicate suffering and its causes. So we can, I can address you as a 21st century person or simply as a sentient being, specifically human being. That's what these teachings are for. And then the teachings where we brush up against Dzogchen, they're not addressing you as a 21st century person. And they're not addressing you as a sentient being either. It's calling to you from afar. Is there someone from your side listening that is your own Buddha nature? And that it's almost like a, a, a harmonic vibration, some kind of a resonance sets up that somehow this seems right, and that's weird. So that's it. So now we go back to addressing ourselves here as sentient beings. I'm going to keep this pretty close to half an hour so we can get more back into our own rhythm, our old rhythm. We're returning now to Shantideva's text, the, the first one that we're looking at. So, and I've, I've recovered the first, I think, three, three verses here. 
And now we go into verse 20, uh, 91. So some of you may have it. Uh, and so here we are. Close application of mindfulness to feelings. And now this is an absolutely majamaku critique. And this further preface, and that is, as I've mentioned here and there, in classic, very rigorous monastic training, whether in the Nyingma tradition, where they get maybe spend 10, 15 years becoming Kempo, which is the culmination, or in the Galupa tradition, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years, one of my, geshe, one of my teachers spent 35 years of formal training to get his Geshe degree. Um, they'll study Madhyamaka standardly for four years. And if they are people like Geshe Rapten, or Genlam Rimbo, or other, or Geshe Ngamantaige, who are outstanding scholars, and they really become yogis, then they will take that four years primarily of hearing and reflection, hearing, reflection. And the reflection, the contemplation, the second of hearing, thinking, and meditation is often done in the debating courtyard. Okay? So that's where you're doing your reflecting. You're, you're drawing it out, and there's a lot of energy in that. There's a lot of energy in that. Their most, because I wrote a whole book on this, Geshe biography, uh, their most intensive phase of the whole training, Geshe was 24 years, the most intensive f- f- phase of that 24-year training was the four years of Madhyamaka. Really intense. Really intense. Right? And so what's the point of all of that? First of all, to get crystal clear understanding by way of hearing. And that is you now understand what the teachings are saying, whether you agree with them or disagree with them. Maybe you're studying them as a Vedanta and you want to refute them or whatever. But you really have understood it. And if somebody gives you an exam, Okay, what did Shantideva, what is Shantideva's position about the non-inherent nature of feelings? Whether you believe it or not, you can give a correct exposition of what he was getting at. And if somebody quizzes on you, grills, grills you on it, you can still say, say things that were correct about his view. Right? Whether, whether or not you've really reflected deeply to see whether any of it's true or not. Okay? So you can pass a university exam that way, a university exam in a class, get a good grade. So that's the first point. You can't skip that one. And then we have the second one, and that's really understanding the teachings as something objective, something from outside that you hear, right? Somebody else's, Shantideva's teachings in this text. But then if you want to go further, you'd like to actually take a big step towards letting this be a benefit to your own mind stream. Then you go into the seeking the cultivation of prajna, wisdom, understanding, by way of reflection, critical analysis, thinking. And what you're doing now is you're taking your own experience your own intelligence, but especially your own experience and what you think you know of reality, and then relating it. So now it's like a wrestling match between the teachings, let's say, of Shantideva on, on Madhyamaka and your own experience, your own intelligence, your own understanding. That's why I draw from 21st century physics. That's my understanding. I take 21st century physics very seriously. That's part of my worldview, right? Because I was trained in physics, and I, th- I have a great respect for science. So I can't, I can't ignore that. And say, well, never mind that. Let's just deal with 8th century notions of atoms. I can't do that. Then it's not real. And then this creates this bifurcation between how you are when you're outside of a Dharma center and then when you are back to the real world. Phony baloney, right? It's really totally phony. So nothing's really going to happen interesting out of that. It has to be a total integration. So, So my reflection... By testing, this is where His Holiness quoting the, the, the Buddha so many times, you test it like a person who's buying gold. And you want to see, you melt it, you rub it, you do everything you can to it to see, is it really gold or not? Because this is a lot of money. This is $10,000 to buy that, pe- that piece of yellow metal. And if it's not gold, man, I'm getting schlocked here. So I'm going to put every test to, that I can. And when I've fully tested it, 
say, man, I, okay, it stood up to every test. Okay, here's the cash. Give me the gold, right? And that's just gold. What we're talking about here is our lives and our way of viewing reality. So to accept the Madhyamaka view cheaply, you say, oh, that sounded good to me. Yeah. That ain't going to work. Yeah. It's not going to become your view. It'll be merely part of your belief system, like my believing that Jupiter has moons. That hasn't influenced my view of reality at all. And I think it is true. But there it is, just a belief. And I'm not even testing it. I think maybe I did once, but you know, a long time ago. So there's hearing, and that's what they'll spend four years doing, hearing and thinking, thinking by way of debate, sharpening. So people sharpening, Miles and I getting into debate, and he sharpens his sword on my sword, and I sharpen my sword on his sword. And it's a very, very effective way of learning. I went through it myself, and it is very effective. But one, again, but for the really fine geshes and really fine kempos, what's all of that for? is that when you've finished your formal education with all of the talking, the reading, the memorization, and all of that, what do the authentic ones do that knew that what this is all for? They get their degree, perhaps, and then they're gone. And they're off then to the culmination, the flowering. And that is meditation. Right? So there's one way of doing it. Now, getting a 15-year Kempo training or a 25-year Geshe training may, be, may not, maybe not so feasible for us. Number one, you really can't do it if you don't speak Tibetan. It's not available. Not even, not even Hamburg. Not quite the same, right? Or London, Geshe Tashi, and so forth. Wonderful teachers and all of that. But will you get a Geshe degree out of that? Not by a long shot. So is there another avenue? And the answer, of course, there is. And that is, if you've achieve shamatha. And that shouldn't take 25 years. If you have put together the, the, the causes and conditions, <laughs> find a suitable environment, you know, it may not take as long as becoming a geshe. But if you achieve shamatha, you have a mind that is so superbly tuned that you can use that in a very piercing, effective, just that way, piercing and effective way to penetrate right through to some experiential realization of impermanence, the nature of dukkha, the nature of non-self. Because those entail the very investigation of appearances themselves. Closely, closely scrutinize appearances. And then you see their momentary arising. I've never been so persuaded by one of the things that the Galupa tradition says. Never been persuaded. That just by doing a lot of analytical inference, you'll somehow realize subtle impermanence. I'm sorry, I just don't believe that. Subtle impermanence by thinking a lot? I don't believe it. That it would have an impact and purify? Maybe for other people, but I'll have... Total confidence, that'll not work for me. No way, Jose. I'll just come to an intellectual conviction. Whereas if you've developed shamatha and you're probing right in with a high frequency, and that is high resolution, extremely high vividness of awareness that you get through shamatha and you don't get through debating, and you use that to penetrate into the nature of mental events rising and passing, earth, water, fire, air rising in the body, subtle impermanence, you betcha. I think there's really good reason to believe that. There's no reference in the Pali Canon or the whole Theravada tradition of using syllogisms to gain direct realization of subtle impermanence. I don't believe that. Right? And then for non-self, can you get a conceptual understanding by way of debating? And Yes, you can. Direct realization's got to be. It's got to be. Powered by shamatha. So if you have that kind of preparation, and then you take your shamatha-trained mind, your shamatha mind, and you apply it to what he's saying right here, that would work. I think it's day and night. I really do. It's day and night. Take these same syllogisms and then engage in these investigations that he's suggesting 
but do it with the shamatha mind, then that is another route. And this was suggested to me years ago by Tijan Rinpoche, Kepchi Tijan Rinpoche. The Geshe approaches the person who wants the 11-course 11 11 gourmet meal. But it's not the only way. So we shouldn't give up on ourselves. And, we should, and if anybody else wants to give up on you, mm, wish them well and find another teacher. Well, we can't really take you seriously. After all, you don't speak Tibetan, you're not a geshe, you're not a monk. So, well, well why don't you do some pujas? Find another teacher. You know? Because there are other ways. There are other ways. And I have spending, having spent a lot of time with Asians and with Westerners, I have encountered quite a number of Westerners now. I think, I'm, I'm just totally persuaded, have authentic renunciation. Without having spent years and years and years studying, and some who I've known have spent years in no renunciation at all. So renunciation can come from the inside. It doesn't come just by lots and lots of study and so forth. So there it is. If one has a shamatha base, this becomes a lot more accessible. And this is what Geshe Amantaiki told me almost 40 years ago. Achieve shamatha vipassana, and he's referring to this type of vipassana. Not so hard. So back to the text. So now here, and again, it's, it is subtle. Verse 91. And, the, and the, the challenge here is that when we're investigating impermanence, dukkha, non-self, we really are investigating exp- appearing reality. We're investigating appearances, and we can get insight by investigating, probing, penetrating into those appearances. It's quite true. You can really see it. You can observe thoughts, and you can see they have no owner. You can see by observing them, they are not self and have no owner. But when it comes to madhyamaka, now we're doing, now we're doing the core healing. It's if like, like if, if a disease has multiple layers and you, you heal the outer layers of it and the person feels a lot better, but there's still some nucleus, the nucleus of something that will just keep on, it's, in other words, chronic. It will continue to give sim- symptoms forever even though you've healed the outer stuff. This madhyamaka vipassana now is going for that nucleus and to eradicate that completely and irreversibly. And that's what Vipassana is for. You know. So this is deep healing he's talking about. And this means that we have to do more than co- closely examine appearances because this is, this is contrary to appearances. Just like in a lucid dream. You know you're dreaming and then doggone it, there's Graham in my dream and he still appears to be there from his own side. In other words, if I'm in a lucid dream and I say, well, I'll, I'll figure out that you're not inherently existent by just gazing at you really hard. The appearance of existence from a soul sign does not vanish. Because the appearance itself seems to be from its own side. So therefore you have to use intelligence. Prajna, prajna paramita, transcendent wisdom or the culmination of intelligence. So here we go, finally. If suffering does not arise when the conditions for its opposite have arisen, does it not follow that a feeling, a so-called feeling, is a false notion created by conceptual fabrication? Of all the sentences in the book, this is one of the least transparent. But if you understand it, then okay. This is really deep and it's very few words. If suffering does not, so here it is, if suffering does not arise when the conditions for its opposite have arisen. And that is, so you're experiencing something really pleasant, a lovely day, good companionship, some pleasant conversation, and there you are, and pleasant feelings are arising. And then you say, well, suffering is not arising. Why not? Because the conditions for it to arise have been shoved aside, and conditions for pleasure to arise have arisen. 
if that's the case, and it seems utterly commonsensical, like how's anybody going to refute that? Like, duh, right? He said, well, if that's the case, does it not follow that a feeling is a false notion created by a conceptual fabrication? The Sartreutica says, you've just lost your mind. What you've just said is gibberish. Because that's exactly how pleasant feeling arises, independent upon causal conditions. And then those causal conditions change, and other causal conditions arise, and absolutely inherently real suffering arises. And then the conditions change, and absolutely real, inherently existent pleasure arises. So what part of this don't you understand, you madamigas? You know? And we see this is, this is about as sensible as classical physics. I mean, it just makes really, really good sense. And he said it's completely wrong. Not conventionally. So, oh, and then the Sartreutica says, oh, you mean, you mean you're still giving that some credence, that suffering arises independence upon causing conditions, which change, and then, yeah, we are. But, and the but is enormous, big buts. Not inherently real. <laughs> He's so easy to entertain. <laughs> I think we have some past life comic connection. <laughs> comic. Yes. yes, I was doing another little joke. Very small. Okay. Have I squeezed that one dry? Then on we move. He is pointing now to something that he's saying, of course this is conventionally true. I mean, but we already knew that. Nobody doubted that in the first place. But he's pointing now to that issue of origination. What he's refuting here, of course, is not feeling pleasure or pain, suffering or joy. He's refuting its inherent nature. So we, again, Tsongkhapa highlights so clearly. I've never seen anybody highlight it as clearly as he does, he and his followers. And that is you must hold in mind, get a clear sense what's being refuted here. Not feeling, not joy, not sorrow. That's stupid. Shantideva is not stupid. What's being refuted? Reified feeling. That is, suffering existing in and of itself by its own inherent nature. Now, a crucial element of this is when we merely... Every word here is really actually important. There's not now no fat. I'm not going off the tangents. And that is... If I look around and say, is, um, is Betty Rose here? Said, oh, yeah, she's, she's right over there. How do they say in Tibetan? Matat mache. Without investigating, without, ana- without analyzing. Is Betty Rose here or not? Oh, yeah, she's right over there. So without investigating, without analyzing, that's a perfectly conventionally true statement within our framework of Betty Rose being here or not. And the answer is yes, and that's the end of the conversation. But now if you say, oh, you mean she's really here? Okay, exactly, good. Where is she? Is she in her head, in her chest, her torso, her legs? Is she in the composite? Is she in your mind? Is her mind busy? When we do the ontological analysis, nowhere to be found. There's no sentient being there. There's no Betty Rose. There's no woman. There's not even any molecules from their own side and independently, objectively. But when we, when we say, but conventionally speaking, is Betty Rose here? As in a lucid dream. Exactly as in a lucid dream. In a lucid dream, you know you're lucid, you know it's a dream, and within your dream, within that cognitive framework, if Patrice says, Alan, is Betty Rose here? And I am lucid, I said, yeah, she's right over there. And I know there's nobody really over there, but you know that I've just given the right answer because you can get now go over and shake her hand or give her some chocolate or whatever. Right? 
So, the point here is holding that notion, holding, holding the reified entity in mind. If suffering, we've already done the, the Advent bit and all of that, but now suffering, it's so intimate, so close, and so powerfully real when it arises. It's hard to find anything more real to a person who's really suffering, physically or mentally, right? Atoms seem, even the physical world, can fade out. When suffering overwhelms you, even the physical world seems to be rather ethereal. But suffering, man, oh man. And if that's not inherently real, so what is this, when we grasp onto or reify suffering, how does it appear? As self-defining, as having its own contours, its own intrinsic nature, existing by itself, and what reification does, in essence, it decontextualizes. If we consider that the nature of suffering and all other phenomena is that they are all dependently related events, pratiti samutpada, that their very existence is one of interdependence with that which is around them, interdependence prior, independence upon prior causing conditions, interdependence in relationship to their own components, their own attributes and so forth, interdependence in terms of the way they are apprehended, conceptually designated, perceived, that they are everything arises within a mesh, within a network, within a system. But it's not a bunch of individual autonomous things coming together. Their very existence is mesh-like, right? So that's the reality of things. Not that Tracy doesn't exist, but Tracy is arising within this context. This whole, this whole Indra's net of causation and conceptual designation. Hers, mine, and everybody else's here in this room. Right? That's the reality of it. But then when I reify Tracy, first of all, I just lay, uh, I label here. Without investigation, without analysis. I say, is Tracy here? She's right over there. No problem. The Buddha would do that. Arya Bodhisattvas do that. Is Tracy here or not? Yeah, she's right over there. Right? But then when I reify, then I lock her in. With the reification, I've now put absolute contours around Tracy and not Tracy. There's the rest of the universe, which is not Tracy, and now there are these absolute borders around Tracy. And I've isolated her in space and time because Tracy is just really there, which means the past is irrelevant. And the future is irrelevant because Tracy is just really there, like one of those billiard balls that hangs in, in outer space all by itself, absolutely independent and real. So there's the notion of an inherently distant Tracy. Decontextualized from time, decontextualized from space, from causality, everything around her, and with absolute contours, and she absolutely bearing her own attributes. And, so, and, and then I look over and she says, yeah, there she is. I, I just picked it up. I'm just a simple witness here. I'm not a participant. I'm just a, a passive observer, an objective observer, and getting what is absolutely out there from her own side. That's the reified Tracy. Okay? So for a person, so for an atom, and now Shantideva is saying this is exactly the same for feeling. When we reify feeling, we decontextualize it. We don't see past. We don't see future. We don't see causation. We don't see... We don't see its interrelatedness with anything, and certainly not with our own conceptual designation. It seems to be absolutely there in and of itself, and arising, if it arises at all, it arises at independence upon absolutely real objective causes and conditions. And his point here, you might recall, remember the when do you call when an egg and a sperm come together and gradually, when do you call it a human, when is it, when is it a human body? So that point of it didn't exist and now it does. That's exactly the point here. 
It's one of the primary modes of investigating emptiness is the emptiness of origination. Objectively speaking, independent of conceptual designation, nothing ever comes into or out of existence. It's, e it's either absolutely there or absolutely not there, but there's no way, and just pause for a moment, if something is absolutely not there, how could it possibly become absolutely there? That's kind of a, kind of a knockout, knockout punch, isn't it? If it's absolutely not there, how could you bring a lot of co contributing circumstances to make something that's absolutely not there absolutely be there? Isn't that just totally impossible? And if it's absolutely there, how could you bring other co cooperative conditions to make it absolutely not be there? It's there. So that's it. That's the reified object. You can't do anything with it. It's absolutely there, which means there was no point in which it could originate because that would entail something absolutely not being there, absolutely being there. But how would that transition ever take place? It conventionally takes place when we say so. Right. Now it's a human body. Now it's a galaxy. Now it's this. Now it's that. But it's the conceptual designation that comes in, okay, now. Now it began. And now it ended. Conceptual designation. It's that whole point of frozen time again. If you just want to make an extremely brief foray. If there is no observer participant who says now, there's no past and there's future, and there's a frozen universe. I mean, it's amazing they came up with that conclusion with no knowledge of Manjamek at all. It really is astonishing. And then for a person like Anton Seilinger, who spent so much of his time in the lab, he was just, it was a jaw-dropper for him that so many, it seems, actually identical conclusions could be drawn by monks out there in the debating courtyard getting it conceptually and then all the more importantly, because this is the real jaw-dropper. I mean, Hillary Button does a fantastic job conceptually, but that's where it stops. And then he moved on and did, to my mind, much less interesting philosophy than during that incredible phase during the 1980s. That's just my opinion, of course. But what's really extraordinary here, and you do not get to this level without shamatha, is you apply your shamatha mind to that Vipassana investigation, and you gain some insight, and you find by that insight you can actually shift the reality you're experiencing. Like Chantakirti, when he was debating with the Hindu. And after a while, no, yeah, yeah, it was Chantakirti. Debating with somebody who was a metaphysical realist. And they're debating back and forth. I think Chantakirti just got bored after a while. You know, like me debating with materialists. After a while, I said, oh, whatever. I just want to walk away. And it, it's just, it's boring. Because it's just like, oh, man, how long do we need to stay in kindergarten for retarded children? <laughs> So Chandakirti is debating with this guy that you know, won't give up. And, said, fine, and finally, remember, remember? Chandakirti comes over to the wall of his little hut there and he, he, draws it, he makes a drawing of a cow. And then he milks it. <laughs> as far as he was concerned, that was the end of the debate. So it's, it's raising... A, this is, now what I'm about to say is, this is... What I'm about to say is an empirical issue. And that is, if you have realized emptiness. And that's backed with this fusion of shamatha vipassana. If you withdraw conceptual designation, if you withdraw conceptual designation, that reality vanishes for you. It's not at all to say it vanishes for other people. Of course not. But it vanishes for you. Because if that phenomenon are, does not exist independently of conceptual 
independently of conceptual designation. And with you being in the center of your mandala, if you withdraw the conceptual designation from your perspective, that phenomenon vanishes. Now, where is this actually quite evident? Lojong. Lojong. Mind training, seven-point mind training, eight verses training mind, where they're bringing people like Atisha and Langritamba and so forth, are bringing the Madhyamaka right in there to Lojong, to shift, to alter, to purify, to train our attitude, our ways of viewing reality, such that when we encounter adversity, something that we have, what we have actually encountered is a situation. Don't they say that in politics? Ladies and gentlemen, we have a situation. Probably not a good one. <laughs> They're probably not going to say, from now on, we're going to hold Christmas twice a year. <laughs> when they say it's a situation, then they're preparing you to conceptually designate it as it's a catastrophe. It's an adversity. It's something we didn't want. Right? So the conceptual designation comes out. There's some situation, some circumstance, and then we conceptually designate it, is this is awful, this is terrible. And then, of course, the emotions arise together with that. And then now we have to deal with major adversity. All the sadness, grief, anger, hatred, and so forth may arise. And Lojong is saying, go back to the situation. Go back to the basis of designation. Before you designated it as adversity, catastrophe, miserable, awful, horrible, great misfortune, Go back to the situation, remove the conceptual designation, and give it a new designation. This, has been, this is so helpful for my practice. It helped me develop renunciation. This is a great boon. This helps me develop greater compassion. This gives me greater faith in following the path, greater inspiration to find genuine happiness. This is preparing me well for, for death and so forth. And now the adversity is gone for you. Other people may be commiserating with you. Oh, so terrible. I heard, ab- I heard about what happened to you. I'm so sorry. You say, well, feel be sorry if you like, but for me it's not an adversity. I decided otherwise because I saw that it was not inherently existently from its own side. It was not already an adversity that simply landed on my lap like a poisonous snake. But the poisonous snake of adversity was something I designated and having seen the emptiness of adversity, I withdrew the designation and I designated in a way more favorable, more fruitful, more beneficial. That's Madhyamaka in action. That's where the rubber hits the road. It can transform your life. And that's what Lojong is about. And so there it is. For you, it disappears. One thing disappears, and then if you, if you, if, if you then redesignate it, this is not adversity for me. This is a boon for the cultivation of deeper compassion. That's what it is for you. Because you've designated now... The same basis of designation is now designated in a different way, which means you've shifted not only your perspective, but you've shifted the reality you're experiencing. Now keep on doing that, and you can shift yourself right over into Sukhavati. You know, that can be your, lo- your neighborhood. Dewachen, a pure land. It'll probably take a few incremental steps in between. You know. So there it is. So he's getting at something with this one short sentence, very, very deep. And that is, if this is the case, that if cause and conditions can shift, then what happens is, when they shift enough, then the, the designation of suffering is removed, 
and then the designation of this is really nice is imputed, and now you're experiencing pleasure. But it takes the conceptual designation for that shift to take place. And if the conceptual designation isn't there, it's not there already objectively. Which means, therefore, does it not follow that a so-called feeling, that which we verbalize, that which we conceptualize as feeling, is a false notion, false in the sense of misleading. We didn't just discover it. We didn't just get it. We co-created it. Now, not out of the blue. This is why it's co-creation, observer participancy. We didn't just sit in the dark imagining, I think I'm happy. Something arose, independence upon which we conceptually designate pleasurable, unpleasurable, and so forth. So is this not a false, that is a misleading notion <coughs> created by conceptual fabrication, conceptual designation? So he's, he's invoking here the role of the observer participant and saying without that you do not have any inherently existent suffering or joy. So that's 91. Oh boy, we've gone on long. We have to do one more verse, I think, at least one or two. Therefore, this analysis is created as an antidote to that false notion. This analysis is created as an antidote to reification. Reification. This is deep medicine. This is going to the very nucleus of the disease and nuking it. So this, for the, for the meditative stabilizations, that's jhana. For the jhanas that arise from the field of investigations, are the food of contemplatives. Are the food of contemplatives. So I checked this out, read his whole in his commentary, and what it is, and it's explicitly making the point that I made earlier, <laughs> based upon this work, is with this union of shamatha, vipassana, those two, when you're engaging in this time of investigation, superpowered with shamatha, so it's a shamatha vipassana investigation, then through this, there arises a, some realization of the emptiness of feelings, emptiness of matter, emptiness of the physical world, and so forth. In this case, emptiness of feelings. And in that realization, that shamatha vipassana realization of emptiness, there arises an exceptional pliancy, buoyancy, suppleness, that same term that we referred earlier to shamatha, Xinjiang That was the shamatha just from Xinjiang, just from having an extremely healthy mind. But now another whole dimension, another whole order of magnitude, of pliancy, suppleness, buoyancy, arises from the union of shamatha vipassana. Okay? It's just, it's off the charts. It's another whole order of magnitude of it. And this is a pliancy, something that just feels wonderfully good. It is a type of nourishment. So you're actually being nourished now by a sense of well-being that's coming from your jhana, the, sh- the, sh- the fusion of shamatha vipassana. So you're getting nourished by that. Right? Of course, what you're being nourished by is genuine happiness. Hola, so one more verse. Oh, this is a big one now. Now we're going to try to we're going to try to do all the rest tomorrow. I think that's enough. That's enough for today. The rest has to do with the origination. It's quite a deep analysis, and it's about eight verses. So we'll finish this section tomorrow. But just as a preview, the the, rem, the, the remaining section of this analysis of feelings goes right into a very detailed ontological investigation, right into their mode of being of how is it the feelings arise. We say in Buddhist psychology over the, all over the place, feeling arises independence upon contact, rekpa, rekpa, contact, right? And what he's doing there is he's deconstructing contact, but it's a really precise investigation. 
And it really struck me that, as I review this to make sure that I pass on something authentic, that this calls for a really sharp scalpel. A really sharp scalpel. This is microsurgery to get in there. The middle way here is very slender. right? Because what he's doing is he's coming to the conclusion. I'll brace you a little bit tomorrow, for, for tomorrow. He's coming to the conclusion that, in fact, contact, real contact, of a real object and a real subject, or even two real objects, never happens. Two independent, inherently existent material phenomena never actually touch, let alone immaterial consciousness actually touching something physical, and all the materials would go along with that. You know, that's why they say that there can be no mental causality if mind is not physical, because how could something that's non-physical possibly influence the physical? And of course, they're reifying everything, and the answer is it can't. So therefore, they just bog down in materi- mechanistic materialism, which is saturated by reification. And it seems to work with a few, a little bit of collateral damage. So he's denying that in any inherently real contact takes place among molecules, any real inherently real contact takes place between your sensory organs and any object. And then he's looking for a subject and not, and not finding any inherently real subject as an experiencer. So right back to that triad that we looked at earlier with John Wheeler and all of that, information. There's one who's informed, there's the process, the flow of information, and that about which you're being informed, right? And moreover, if you take out any one of those, you just pay, take your tweezers and take it out, the other two do not remain. Oddly enough, you kill just one of them and the other two just vanish, which means they couldn't have been. Isn't it true? They could not possibly be inherently existent if by taking something else out, they vanish. But you didn't touch them. You didn't even touch them. How could you destroy them if you didn't even touch them? You just removed the informata, something about which you're being... And then suddenly there's no information and no one being informed. And take out this one, the other two. Take this one, the other two. They can't possibly be inherently existent if they can disappear by touching something else, right? So that, as for information, so for feeling, if there's nothing out there that, you're, that is inherently real that you are feeling, that you're contacting, that's arousing the feeling, if there's nothing inherently there, then inherently there, there cannot possibly arise an inherently existent feeling arising in dependence upon something that isn't there. And likewise, if there's no inherently existent feeling, there cannot possibly be an inherently existent feeler, one who experiences feeling. So take out any one of those three, an inherent agent or feeler or experiencer of feelings. If that's not there, there's no possible way there can be inherently existent feeling because it can't be orphaned, a feeling saying, somebody please feel me. <laughs> Where did you go? Where did you go? I'm lost, you know? So he's tying this in. It's really quite extraordinary. Because this is based upon the prior insight into the emptiness of physical phenomena, something you're actually contacting physically, that being empty, then no really existing feeling can arise in contact with something that isn't really there. Right. And so those three, the felt, that which you are feeling, the tactile sensations, the tactile sensations in your head when you have a migraine, the tactile sensations in your foot when you have an injured foot, Tactile sensations, right? And in response to how you're experiencing those tactile sensations, it hurts. What hurts? The tactile sensations hurt, right? 
And that's the information being transmitted, the, tra the tactile sensation coming up. But what's getting really across, something hurts, my foot hurts, my back hurts, my something hurts. And so there's the transmission, and it's a feeling. And then there's a sense in this reification, and I'm the victim here. I'm the one that's suffering. I need some help. I'm really hurting here. I, I am real, and I'm in pain. We have three fists. Right? Take away any one of those. The other two fists vanish into thin air, which means they never existed in the first place. Not inherently. It's powerful stuff. So, to ask that we go from a 40-minute talk and now meditate on emptiness. Maybe you can. Maybe the words were clear enough. Maybe Shantideva's, there's a blessing there. Maybe you can. And maybe you, you can't. In which case you may feel, oh, I'm not keeping up. I'm not keeping up. I, 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 I tried to meditate on it, and I couldn't. Because by gum, when I feel p pain, it just feels about as real as anything. And that just means that this has to be taken step by step. Right? So if you'd already achieved shamatha, that step by step would be much, much faster. If you've not achieved shamatha, then what I would say is now as we go to the meditation is if you wish, it's your choice. I think I'm going to let it be, I'll think about it, whether silent or a little bit of writing. I don't know yet. We'll see. But either let the meditation be a time for some reflection. So for some examination, investigation. That's in that mid-phase, having heard the teachings, maybe having some conceptual understanding. Then, okay, then what you do is you take that conceptual understanding about a, from a book, right? and then you apply that to actual feelings you are feeling, what, regardless of books. This is my feeling. I didn't get that from Buddhism. And then you take those teachings and you apply it to your feelings, and you start checking. Do those teachings there, which maybe make conceptual sense, do they, are they relevant to my experience here? And you start doing the investigation. Okay? Sharpening the knife. But you're sharpening the knife on the whetstone of your own experience and not just clapping your hands with other people. Right? So that's one possibility. Investigating, putting it to the test. Because if this is true, I mean, it's absolutely revolutionary. Really. It just radically changes everything, not only as a conceptual idea like, you know, quantum cosmology, very cool idea, but your whole way of viewing reality and the whole malleability. I mean, you're really virtually stepping into a, a lucid dream during the waking state, that reality should become that. If you really gain the realization, it really would imply that you can start modifying physical reality here with pretty much the same degree of freedom that you can change a lucid dream. Now, if that's true, man, that really changes everything. Right? So this will not be an easily won truth. Shamatha is not easily won, but if you have that, that will be a tremendous advantage. In the meantime, just take it where you are. Reflect upon it, investigate. And at some point you feel, I think I've gone as far as I can right now, maybe I need to learn a bit more, whatever. Good, then release it. And go back then to your experience, back to the first, eight, first four weeks here. Attending closely to feelings, coming into the body, for example, and continuing there. Okay, let's have one session.
bearing in mind the words that the mind settled in meditative equipoise comes to know reality as it is. Settle your body, speech, and mind in equipoise. And for a little while, calm the conceptual turbulence of the mind with mindfulness of breathing. Now let the light of your awareness clearly illuminate the space of your body, this field of tactile sensations. With discerning mindfulness, note earth, water, fire, and air. Tibetan, these sensations are called recha, that which is contacted. So note clearly the nature of that which is contacted when you direct tactile perception to the tactile field and see what, ar- what arises, what appears.
when the mind is very quiet, conceptually uncluttered, unelaborated, you may be able to nakedly perceive these tactile sensations simply as tactile sensations, having no feelings, devoid of feeling, not by their own nature, pleasant or unpleasant. Earth is not pleasant. Water is not pleasant. It's just earth and water. These are the appearances that we conceptually and validly designate as the emergences of earth, water, fire, and air within the domain of space. So far, so good. But do these sensations call themselves by those names? Are they self-defining? Waiting to be passively discovered and superficially labeled but already bearing their own intrinsic identity. Is that true or false? Examine closely in this first-person perspective, from the inside out, on your body, where you live, But of course, there's more in the space of the body than tactile sensations, that which we contact. Feelings also arise. We experience those sensations pleasurably, unpleasurably, neutrally. 
So before we engage in an ontological analysis, seeking the ultimate nature, the absence of inherent nature of these feelings, let's closely apply mindfulness simply to the feelings as feelings. So we get a clear sense, clear understanding, experiential, of what's the relative nature of the phenomena for which we'll seek their ultimate nature. Examine closely the feelings that arise in the body. Are they by nature static or in flux? Intrinsically pleasurable or unpleasurable? Do they intrinsically have an owner or not? This is simply establishing their conventional nature. Let's examine this first through the close application of mindfulness to feelings. Identify a feeling arising in the body. Whatever is most salient, whatever is most obvious to you, be it pleasant or unpleasant, locate it. Find your specimen. If you've clearly identified what part of the body it's located in, if you see clearly how large a space does it occupy, once you have set your sights, on something that you know to be a feeling. As if you're putting it under a microscope, a specimen between two glass slides.
and then peer through the microscope of your samadhi. And as you do so, to the best of your ability, withhold any conceptual designation at all, any label, any thought. Just observe what you see through the lens of samadhi as you examine closely the very appearance of the feeling that you have located. Observe very closely and see what you see. Does your withholding of the conceptual designation have any impact on what you're experiencing when you sharply focus your attention in that pleasurable or unpleasurable location? Now experiment. This is your laboratory. And the subject of investigation is the feelings arising within the body, within this space. Go back to that same location where some type of feeling was manifesting. And then very deliberately label it. If it's unpleasant, call it unpleasant. And you can elaborate. I wish this would go away. This is tiring me out. I really don't like this. This is such a drag. This really doesn't feel good at all. Give yourself a script. and see if you can deliberately reify. Grasp onto it as really absolutely there from its own side.
now very deliberately utterly withdraw the conceptual designation together with the reification. Observe, but now with the quietest mind you can muster. Intensely clear, highly focused, stable, interested, but utterly quiet and as free of conceptual designation as possible. And see what you see. Does this alter your experience of that location within the body? Hand in hand with, with, with withdrawing the conceptual designation, do your very best to withdraw the aversion, the sense of not liking, wanting it to go away. See if you can release that. It's subjective, it's coming from your side. So see if you can withhold that as well, this subjective response of aversion.
and some clarity arises, some insight. For a little while, stop seeking, stop investigating, and simply rest in a flow of knowing. Sustain that insight. Let it seep in. This is your facsimile of the union of shamatha and vipassana. Tsongkhapa makes a very subtle and I think very brilliant point in drawing a sharp distinction between simply withdrawing the reification, withdrawing the conceptual designation, and then withdrawing the reification in so doing. If you withdraw the conceptual designation, you have withdrawn the reification. But let's look at this piece by piece. It's possible to withdraw reification without withdrawing conceptual designation, as in a lucid dream. In a lucid dream, knowing perfectly well this is a dream, if Elizabeth asks, is Danny, Danny Morris here? And I'm lucid. I said, yes, he's right over there, Elizabeth. He's right over there. I've designated, but I'm maintaining my lucidity. So when I point my finger over, he's right over there. I know there's nobody really over there from his own side. I know that. I know there's no Elizabeth. I know there's no Alan Wallace. But within this context, that was a reasonable question. Within this context, is Danny here? Yeah, he's right over there. Case closed, right? But I know that right there I point my finger and I say he's right over there. There's no one there. Not from his own side. He's no one there. Not where I'm pointing my finger. Not there. And so it's possible to make a conceptual designation without reification. That's a crucial point. Because some people don't get that. 
They figure if you're conceptually designating, that's already delusional. Wrong. Then the Buddha can never speak. Because as soon as he speaks, hello, Ananda, oh, I'm sorry. As if he's just reified Ananda by recognizing Ananda as Ananda, right? So that's not true. You can reify, you can withdraw, withhold reification without necessarily having to withdraw conceptual designation as in a loose dream, right? Or you can, you can withdraw both. And then that is simply by withdrawing conceptual designation, then you withdraw the reification of that conceptual designation. You can do that. And the point I was about to make there is that in withdrawing the conceptual designation, withdrawing that grasping, because even conceptual designation itself is a type of benign, subtle grasping. Oh, that's Jerry over there. That's grasping. Subject, object duality. He's over yonder. I'm over here. In a lucid dream. But it's still a kind of grasping. It's not delusional, but nevertheless, it is the kind of grasping, right? And so one can withdraw the reification and the conceptual, gra- the, the conceptual grasping, conceptual designation. And in so doing, you might find some real respite from suffering. Because it, and from mental afflictions. Because this is a really core theme. It's an incredibly strong statement. And I think it's true that all mental afflictions, this is Madhyamaka, all mental afflictions arise out of the reification of whatever you're attending to. If there's no reification, it's a really strong statement, enormously strong, that if you don't reify, no mental afflictions will arise. If you do not grasp onto true existence, no mental afflictions will arise, which then defines clearly, then mental afflictions have to be rooted in delusion, because if there is no delusion, mental afflictions don't arise. That's the assertion. That's an empirical claim. It's a really strong one. right? And so, by withdrawing, holding in abeyance, holding back, that tendency, like a contagious disease or something that spreads the reification, then the mental afflictions that would arise independence upon that reification don't arise. I'm going to finally say now what Tsongkhapa's point, and that is to withhold reification so that the mental afflictions that arise from or are derivative of reification don't arise. And since the mental afflictions aren't arising, the suffering that they give rise to doesn't happen then you feel good. That feels better, right? Because you've gotten down there to the root. You've withheld the root. So there's one, there's one possibility. You really can do that. But he said that, doing that, and actually realizing that that which you are reifying actually does not exist. Those are two different things. Subtle distinction. One is more like a truce. The truce. You've just stopped fighting. But all you need is for Christmas Day or the holidays to pass, and then nothing's resolved. All the problems that gave rise to the war in the first place, I'm referring, of course, to 1914, World War I, look like a really peace had broken out. They're playing soccer and, and singing Christmas carols together. It looked like jolly good. That was a short war, you know, until the circumstances changed. And then, of course, nothing had been resolved at all. And all the mental afflictions came out again, and they fought for another four years. And so similarly in samsara, we can temporarily withdraw the conceptual designation, the reification, the mental afflictions that arise, independence upon, don't arise, and it feels jolly good. Hallelujah. Moksha. And that, I think, is what they come up with before the Buddha. Because when you go into deep samadhi, 
You go into the form realm. You go into the formless realm. Man, oh man, conceptual designation. That's gone so dormant, you can't even find it. You know? And then the reified objects. What, when you're resting in the samapati, the absorption of nothingness, it's like, what are you going to reify? You know? Or infinite space, infinite consciousness. Man, there's not much to hold on to there. So no wonder that these brilliant contemplatives prior to the Buddha, they'd go into those states where conceptual designation is profoundly withdrawn. I've gone into the deep freeze, really out of sight. You know? And they can stay there almost like timelessly, it seemed like. No wonder they thought that was moksha. Right? Emptiness, freedom of suffering. No mental afflictions arising at all that they can see. But then you, of course, eventually come out of samadhi. And then you find, yeah, they were in deep freeze, and now Neanderthal man has come out, melted down, and he's beating the crap out of you all over again. (laughs) And so that was the point. The mere withholding of reification doesn't actually yield insight into the sheer non-existence of anything inherently existent. You've just subdued the symptoms. And you have not touched the underlying cause. So this would be a really brief foray to what I discussed yesterday. But when I spoke of drugs having all these side effects, Patrice very rightly pointed out, it's an important point, that some of those side effects may be one out of a thousand. You say, well, that's pretty good, pretty good averages. I take this drug, it alleviates my anxiety, and I got one chance out of a thousand of feeling, feeling suicidal and maybe you know, blowing my brains out. Well, I'd really like the anxiety to go, and that seems like pretty good odds. One out of a thousand, not bad, right? If that, and the other 999, if that was, and congratulations, you've taken this pill, and this is now healing your anxiety, I'd take the pill. One chance out of a thousand, I'm going to commit suicide. 999 chances that I'm going to actually get healed from anxiety. I I think I'll take that pill. Those are odds I can live with. But what if the odds of having taken the pill are zero that you're actually going to heal anything at all? I mean, no chance. Because all you're doing is suppressing symptoms. And now consider that there's not just one terrible side effect. There may be 40. And consider you're not taking the pill once, but maybe for years on end. You've got yourself a revolver with a thousand cylinders in it and you've got 40 bullets, and you're, you're pulling the trigger once a day for months and years on end, think, I'm going to be lucky. I'm going to be... Uh. Not lucky. The odds aren't that great if you've got 40 bullets in the gun in a thousand chambers, but you're pulling it again and again, and, the, and it especially sucks when you know that even when you don't blow your brains out, you're not even moving one inch towards healing anything. I don't want that revolver. Is that fair? I think that's fair. Because this is an important point. It wasn't like one out of two people feel suicidal if they take that drug. That would be very misleading. Small percentage. But I think it's absolutely certain that taking these psychopharmaceutical drugs do not heal anything. And they do have side effects. And if you have to take them year after year after year, which is the, the wet dream of the pharmaceutical company, that they're gonna, you're going to take it for the rest of your life, then the chances of being unlucky that the wrong chamber comes up get higher and higher as the time goes by. So all this is about, I'm going I'm to drop that now, but the point here is that this is, this is an issue of healing, not suppressing symptoms. 
and it's healing there in deeper, deeper, deeper levels. And this now, you say, now you're going for the final cure. That's how deep this is. That it's not just this profound technology of samadhi to so profoundly withdraw conceptual designation that physical pain vanishes. Mental pain vanishes. In the form realm, there is no suffering, no, no explicit suffering, no blatant suffering at all in the form realm. For as long as you stay there, no physical suffering, no mental suffering whatsoever. So just hang out there as much long as you can, right? And there's no bad, there's no bad, bad cylinders in that gun. You know, it's just one good day after another. But eventually, the karma just fizzles away. And you're back, there you are. So this is, this is actually healing. And gosh, if there's a way, because hardly anybody nowadays believes that there is a way to actually get to the root of suffering and eradicate it from its source so that it never arises again. Hardly anybody believes that. But this is a response to the unasked question. How do you get to the root of suffering and cut it so that it never arises again? Even if it arises in the body, it arrives like a mirage. So it doesn't get to you. It doesn't get to your grip. You're lucid. This is, this is the medicine. This is the medicine for completely, irreversibly, and from the very root, knowing reality, and by that knowing, cut the root of suffering from its very source so that it never rises again. I was in the Temple of Dharamsala years ago. And I think it was to receive teachings. I remember there was a book, I think it was my book, of, I had an old, old book on Bodhisattvatara. Tibetan version, book form. And I had my jola, my, my cloth shoulder bag. And it was le- next to a pillar. And it was leaning up there next to the pillar on the ground, but inside my jola. And I was listening to whatever the teachings were. And some Tibetan um, pointed to the jola and said, what's in the jola? And I pulled out his bodhisattvatar. And he said, oh, take it off the ground. He was right. If it's that precious, take it off the ground. Put it in a high place. This is the medicine of medicines. Even the book. Such reverence. We don't find that very frequently on this planet. But it's very precious. It's authentic. Now have a bit of time. Back to basics. Could you please explain again how to generate a proper vacant gaze? Good, I'm glad to go back to practicals. Good. How to generate a proper vacant gaze so that the visual consciousness and appearances are not conflated? with the proper objects of settling the mind and awareness of awareness, and how to prevent prana pressure on the face, relaxation. Good, very practical. We've gone up to all kinds of areas. Now we're right back to our practice. Very good. In terms of keeping the eyes open, it's a good idea. And remember, when His Holiness was asked this, on one occasion, he says, the question was posed, if you're doing one of these practices where the instructions are keep your eyes open, and as you're sitting in meditation, if you find that your eyes just quite, you're really focused, you're really doing the meditation, 
And then just over the course of time, you find your eyes just kind of naturally close. Should you be, oh, you know, spank yourself or something? Wake up, wake up. Should you make a real point of opening the eyes? His response was, oh, no, let them stay closed. So overall, this I find so often, I really love about Tibetan Buddhism, you know, the, the guidelines, and then say, oh, yeah, but there's some malleability here. Monks should not eat afternoon, after midday, and nuns too. Vow. It's a vow. But when I was in the monastery in Switzerland and I was a disciplinarian, man, I know how to chew people out. You know? And I know how to set an example so everybody else will be guilty if they're not being as good as I am. I'm good at that. I know how to do that. You know? Just make people feel guilty as hell. And so that I was setting, setting the standard. Strict monk. We're following all of our 253 precepts. Thank you very much. And then so Geisha Raplin saw the other monks you know, not eating in the evening. And they said, okay, all of you, cool it. You're all getting uptight, <laughs> stressed out, <laughs> irritable. All of you start eating in the evening. <laughs> and that goes for you too, Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the rule and then there's wisdom. Any dope can memorize a rule. Any robot can follow a program. And then a person with wisdom knows when do you follow it strictly and when do you, when do you not. Back to the question. So the eyes open, yeah, that's the idea. Just like the, the monastic precepts of eating. But if it screws up your practice, if you're not sleeping so well, if you have insomnia, if you're getting really fatigued, if you're having stomach, you know, gnawing hunger, if you don't eat something evening, how exactly is that supposed to be good for your practice when it's clearly not good for your practice? So then for the sake of your practice, you take a bit of food because it's what your body needs. Right? So, for this here, eyes open, yeah, that's better. Uh, on the other hand, if, you're, if, if, if you do find it distracting, the conflation of visual appearances with mental consciousness and so forth, then one nice easy segue into it is keep your eyes open, but be in the dark. Then there's not much competition. That's easy. Eyes wide open, yeah, don't see much, good. Almost as good as having eyes closed. And so in the dark or a very dimly lit room, make sure there's nothing interesting or any strong colors, let alone light you know, like bright lights like that, in your field of vision. That's a nice way of doing it. So move in gently. Move in gently. Another way is kind of let your eyes be hooded so a little bit of light comes in from the bottom. Um, and so there's not much distraction. So move in step by step. Let's see if we can do one more. Because there's actually a bit of backlog here of old questions. Based on, this is from Jochen, based on which criteria aspects can I examine myself whether or not I am qualified and ready to enter a Vajrayana practice, accordingly and receive accordingly receive empowerments etc that's a very good question and i don't know i have to tell the story when i was during that first year or so first maybe the second year at most after i moved to ramzala and i'm studying the lamrim studying bodhicharvatara so forth getting a real real foundation and then hearing because geshe on would spice it up he would you know he, had, he was a, a truly gifted teacher he didn't wasn't just a fine scholar he knew how to teach and he loved teaching and he loved his disciples so that's the perfect storm. That's the perfect Dharma storm, reign of Dharma. And so, but he would, when he's teaching just straight Lamrim, he would bring a bit of Vajrayanic here, a bit of glimmer there, get little sneak previews of coming attractions, you know? And so, but the more I heard about Vajrayana, the more daunted I was. You know, I knew, I at least had the wisdom, well, not wisdom, but the understanding that, man, am I in kindergarten here. I could see, whoa, man, those, these are high peaks here. And I knew I was way down in the foothills, if that high up. 
And so I went to him one day and I said, man, this, uh, that Vajrayana is really profound. I know I'm not ready for that. Uh, I need to receive a highest yoga tantra empowerment. Man. And I just said, well, I really know I'm not qualified. He said, very good insight. I'm going to arrange for you now to have Vajrabhairava empowerment from His Holiness. <laughs> Does that sound familiar at all? Like, what? <laughs> I thought we just agreed that I'm totally a you know, kindergarten. You just told me to go to graduate school. He said, yeah. So he could see that I actually knew where I was in the practice. He didn't, I had no pretense of thinking, oh, I'm somebody special. I'm a tantrika. Give me a bone to put through my hair. <laughs> and where, where on earth is my consort? Where's some young, attractive? And I'm very consciously not looking at any woman in this room. <laughs> so he knew that I wasn't, you know, delusional. He knew that I had some faith, that I had some basic understanding. And he knew that I wasn't qualified. He must have. And he said, okay, it's a good place to start. Start by, we're going to sow, sow some seeds now. Start sowing some seeds. So if you have conceptual understanding of the foundations, basic themes of renunciation, bodhicitta, some conceptual understanding of emptiness, teachings, and Buddha nature. If you have a good connection with the Lama, a fundamental confidence. We're not talking about blind faith here at all but a confidence, a trust. For example, like when I was studying physics, it's, it's different, but it's similar. When I was studying physics at Amherst, starting in 1984, uh, I had a lot of confidence in things I didn't yet understand. Relativity theory, quantum mechanics, advanced calculus, and so forth and so on. I didn't, I didn't understand. I'd never done their experiments. I did not know. But this is a pretty impressive tradition. The 400 years of physics, I think it's really, for myself, that it deserves a lot of respect. That's why I'm citing a Hubble telescope and this and this, because I think they've earned that respect. That's my perspective. You know? I, don't demit, I don't expect Tibetans would believe it just because I've said it. So likewise, I, so when you have that, kind of you, you've moved in well enough that it's, it's earned your respect. And if you'd really like to, because that's a crucial point, if you really don't want to receive empowerment. When I was there in Wisconsin, 1978, I'd received a number of empowerments already and commitments that go along with them, lifelong commitments that I'm still keeping. Uh, and these marvelous lamas, really extraordinary lamas, were then giving more highest yoga tantra empowerments. And each one would have its own set of commitments. You know? And I went to Geshe Ratan, my teacher. He was there. I was translating for him as well as Demalocha Rinpoche and Zong Rinpoche. And I think somebody else, another lama, I think. But there's a lot of... I was translating like eight hours a day. Um... And I went to Geshe Rapton, and I said, Geshe-la, I think I've got all that I can handle right now, really, of what I'd like to do. And I know this is a great lama, and I know these are incredibly profound teachings, and I know that I'll not receive them, and I am willing to interpret, because I was the only interpreter there, remember? There were no other interpreters for all the lamas that were there. But I said, I really don't want to get the empowerment, because I don't, I'm not ready to practice. I don't want to try to take on another practice. I've got my hands full already of these tantric empowerments for which I'm not qualified anyway. I'm sowing seeds here. So I'd like your permission to translate for the lamas and not receive the empowerments. He said, okay, fair enough. And I'm so happy I made that decision. So, so choose carefully. If you go for an empowerment, see if there's a commitment. Number one, check out whether there's a commitment or, or not. And if there is a commitment, 
I would suggest, this is just now friendly advice, not authoritative advice. Make sure that it's a practice you really would like to do. And that you really like to be sowing, sowing these seeds for it, even if the seeds don't mature for another 20 years. But you feel you'll enjoy the process. It's a process you embrace, you feel is meaningful, and you'd like to do it. And if you don't feel that, I would say don't take the empowerment. And I don't care who the Lama is or what the empowerment is. I'd say don't do it. Because very quickly you'll find, oh man, I've got to do that commitment now. And I'm so tired. It's been a really long day. And, oh man, I made the commitment. Okay. Blah 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 blah. Oh good, I finished my commitment. And that's it. As if you're kind of flipping the bird to all the Buddhas. That does that satisfy you? Almost like that. Are you satisfied? I went blah 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 for you know however long it took to do the sadhana. I did my kandur, my oral recitation. Are you satisfied? That really, that's low grade, right? That's like a charade. That's like cheap. I can't imagine that that's what the lamas had in mind. That we're fulfilling a commitment by mindlessly reciting some sadhana that we don't want to do. So let's avoid that one. So when you engage in your practice, would you have a commitment? Whether it's 10 years, 20, 40 years later, you're still glad you took it even if you don't get the flowering, the maturation of the practice in this lifetime, if you have enough faith that the Lama, wonderful Lama, suggested this, encouraged this, and so whether the maturation comes this lifetime, future lifetime, I have the faith. I want those seeds. Okay? Good. Yeah, yeah. So enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow. <laughs>